Hello, it's Fangraphs Audio. Carson says too late. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is lead prospect analyst Kylan McDaniel. Lead prospect analyst Kylan McDaniel making his weekly Friday appearance, as he does each week typically. Kylan McDaniel in this uh, edition of the program analyzes prospects of particular note. The international signing period began uh, less than two weeks ago, but nearly two weeks ago. Have there, I ask Kylan McDaniel, have there been any surprises uh, in terms of the signings or other manner of uh, unusual activity? As I say, I talked to McDaniel on a Friday. The previous day, on a Thursday, uh, he had been in attendance at a tournament for high school travel teams uh, featuring a number of young players eligible for the 2016 draft. I asked Kylie about um, any specific players uh, that he had seen during that and also uh, some logistical questions. For example, how at a tournament featuring some 300 teams, do you know which ones to follow of those teams? And also uh, some questions regarding agents, what their presence is like at these tournaments. And then uh, that becomes a conversation about agents generally, uh, how it is they go about recruiting talent and uh, keeping that talent, it turns out, is also of some interest. Also at some point during uh, this edition of the program, Kylie McDaniel uh, becomes everything he hates, as the title of the podcast suggests. So we can look forward to that. Uh, what you have uh, coming ahead of you is the end of this introduction. And then a musical interlude, which has not, as usual, been provided by Kyla McDaniel, but rather uh, by the host himself. So you will hear the uh, end of this, a musical interlude, and then my conversation with Kyla McDaniel on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, which begins right now. I've already been to Paris, already been to Rome. And what did I do but miss my home? I have been out west to California. But I miss the land where I was born. I can't help it. Dum de dum de dum 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 day. No, you told me to call you doofus, and so I did. <laughs> then I said, there's a comment there implying, call me doofus. Oh, call you doofus. Okay. Now I get it. Yeah. Well, we talked just now. I have a big-time wedding to go to in 45 Well, i got to be off in 45 minutes. Big-time wedding. All right, well, let's, 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 have, let's do the show. Yeah, I don't know what we're doing, Kylie, except for what? Except for July 2nd happened... Uh, not since the last time we spoke, but I don't think we've spoken since July second. Did anyone? Did it? Were there any surprises uh, with the signings? Because you had a number of projected teams, and as you've mentioned, some of these—I mean, some of these teams have had deals, uh, not so secret deals. And, yeah, no uh, one, no one like 500k or higher, I think, has signed for a team that I didn't like know about and report, and you know, no months in advance. I think there were a couple guys around like 200 or 300 that I. You know, hadn't heard the team, or maybe I heard one team and it was another one. But at that point, if you like, I'm not making calls trying to figure that out. Once you get down to that level, so yeah, basically no surprises. What happened with the the What happened with the Cubs I, at one point? Because you, uh, the last time we spoke, you had said, <clears throat> or you know, a reader had asked you, "Oh, it looks like the Cubs were targeting mid-range guys." And your point was, "Well, no, they probably weren't. They probably did, did not expect them, and they maybe still don't expect that they're." At, Actual literal mid-range guys, but that's just where you were ranking them. Did 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 the Cubs signings worked out uh, similar to to what you thought? I think, if I'm not mistaken, they have because I don't I'm not keeping super close track of which ones have been like officially formally announced because right. some of these teams are still trading for pool space so that they can announce them. Oh yeah, because right. you have to do the you have to do the signing after you trade for the money. So there's a handful of ones that I think have been like official or like the agent tells a writer and a writer reports it, but the team hasn't announced it. And I believe the Cubs are one of those teams where of like, I don't know, the eight guys or ten guys I projected them, 
they'll probably sign 10 or 11 of them. Like, there's still a couple that were more, like, you know, 50 or 60%, or this is the team mentioned most, not, like, done deal, whereas, like, six of them are, like, done deal. Uh, and I think they've announced or, you know, have all but announced, like, five or six of them. So I think they still have a few more in the hopper that may be announced any day, or maybe they're just, you know, more of the 60 70% chance, you know, will probably eventually happen kind of guys. But, yeah, I think they've spent about half the money I said they would already. Okay. All right. Uh, let me ask you another question. This is just apropos of uh, something that uh, some uh, internet idle internet browsing yesterday. I was just doing some. I was attempting to acquaint myself with some of the uh, more notable player agencies, in particular the player agencies um, who work with players that I myself have liked. For example, Corey Kluber or yeah, Marcus. I know Sen. his agents. Okay. Well, here's the thing. I don't. I don't. I forget which agency it was, <clears throat> but I went to the site. And then, uh, you know, I was looking around and looking at the agents, et cetera, and, uh, you know, contact information. And then I was on one page and a pop-up window appeared or like a pop-up within the page. And it said, it said, um, nearly verbatim, it said, are you a major league player entering his contract year? <laughs> Give us your email address and we, we will, we will get back in touch with you and help, you know, whatever, help you get money. And I have a question. I guess like, how do players, especially once they're in the majors, how do they identify agents? Uh, is it is it merely by uh, navigating their internet browsers to the various <laughs> agent websites and then giving their email address? Is that is it that simple? Uh, I would venture to say no more than two contracts for the major league minimum have ever been negotiated with an agent that found a player like that. Mm. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I, that is not how that happens. Yeah. Uh, g- generally, because the player is the one creating the value and the agent is the one sucking off of his, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> of his value. Yeah. Uh, the agent goes and finds the player. If you are a player that may be a big leaguer or is currently a big leaguer, you have been approached by, I would guess, a dozen agents in your lifetime okay. already. All right. Uh, and so then it's just a matter of you choosing, and if at any point you think they are not in touch with you enough, or in touch with you too much, or not big enough to handle your arbitration case, or really any reason at all, or even no reason, you can dump them at any time. And they, even if they want to dump you, I don't think they're formally allowed to, they just quit calling you and hope that you dump them. <laughs> What's, uh... Because, because the idea of dumping a client is we're spending, say, thousands of dollars spending time on you, traveling to see you, things like that, we don't think you're going to return for us, so we're just going to not pay attention to you and you'll dump us at some point, but we can't formally dump you, although you can just sign a paper and formally dump us. So so, oh, so an agency cannot formally dump a player? As far as I know, they cannot. Okay. Uh, here's another question. With, with regard to the draft... But, what, but they can also say, like, we'd rather not represent you in the league. But then, you know, it's sort of like getting out of verbal commitments with players. If you have too many players committed and you want to get rid of one of them, yeah. it kind of hurts your reputation a little bit if you start saying, hey, the, the guy that we super committed to for the rest of time, maybe you should get out of here. Like, eventually that kind of gets around. So, ideally, the guy would dump you. The, um, the, the, the draft happened recently, about a month ago now. And what what so when that happens, what percentage of those players who are drafted, uh, already like you know now a month after the draft, or as they're negotiating their bonus, what percentage of them have repre- representation, or maybe what percentage by say round or expected uh, bonus, you know threshold? Uh, you're saying for draft guys? Mm-hmm. 
So anyone that got, say, 500k or up has <laughs> had an option of getting an agent. Some of them choose not to because maybe they're going to school or maybe their dad's going to handle it. That's it's maybe 1% of the guys that end up getting signing for 500k or more actually just don't have an agent. A lot of them, it'll be the dad handles it with the advice of a family friend that is an agent that makes sure they don't make a mistake and then represents them going forward and maybe gets, you know, 1% or whatever rather than the normal 4 or 5%. Um, but yeah, very few guys, because at this point there are, you have, you know, say six or seven like big national agencies and then you've got, I don't know, 10 or 15 sort of mid-tier ones and then you have a bunch of really small local shops uh, mm-hmm. that'll be like a guy or two hoping to like kind of make a name for himself and they're kind of spread all over the country. So like, for instance, I think two years ago there was a random pop-up high school player in, in North Carolina and I knew an agent that had some ties up there and I was like, hey, heard about this guy He's, I don't know, committed to a college that you went to or you had some sort of connection to him. I figured I'd tell you first since you have like a legit shot of, you know, getting in there and getting him. And he goes, oh, yeah, I heard he's, you know, he's with one of the small local guys. We were about to go in and see if we could, you know, sort of offer a yeah, a legitimately different. Like I, I'm saying the agents will, you know, are kind of like, you know, sucking the, the venom or <laughs> sucking the bone marrow out of these like, you know, young athletes that are going to make money. They all offer basically the exact same service. When it is a big agency versus a single guy, that is an actual different service they're offering because they have a bunch of stuff. But all the big agencies are almost exactly the same as far as what they can offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they so, already yeah, have so, what? They already have existing connections with like bat manufacturers and sneakers. Yeah, they can and, do your endorsements and all that sort of thing. And if you're high level enough, they'll probably have like a concierge service that can get you, you know, like concert tickets or whatever. But that's usually the high level guys. And then they also know all the scouting directors so they can negotiate probably uh, a little better what your bonus will be. They can give you before the draft a better idea of where you're going to go. They probably have a guy that they send their players to in the offseason to get in shape. Uh, they have a guy that can do financial planning. Like it's all that sort of stuff. That's all just sort of standard for the big agencies and even the mid-tier ones. But for the little, you know, mom and pop operation, usually how that works is they'll, you know, they'll get a couple clients, maybe get a couple to double A, maybe, you know, Scott Boer swoops in and wants to steal that guy when he's in double A. And then it comes down to, does this guy want to sell his company to Boris and become like a Boris agent and sort of, you know, give his clients over? That's like what I think most small agents are looking for is to join a big agency and get a payout at the same time. Uh, but usually what happens is, you know, Boris or the big agency or whatever sees this guy as he can't really help us as an agent. Uh, we could steal this player easily. We don't need to pay him or make him one of our agents. We'll just steal the player. And, and because we offer a legitimately different service, we don't see it as like poaching per se, cause it's like he didn't have service and now he does. Whereas there is a bit, there's a bit of an understanding between a lot of the big agencies or between the big agencies on certain sorts of players that we won't poach. Uh, you know, if, if you're with one of the big, you know, 10 agencies and you're in double A, we're not going to go try to steal them. But there's obviously tons of examples of agencies sending, especially agencies that have a lot of people, uh, sending lower level guys to just basically follow, uh, you know, double A players around and just sort of see if there's an opportunity. And if there isn't, they'll bring in the big guy to give the whole sales job. So I think there's a lot of sort of poking around, making calls, maybe you represent another guy on that guy's team, kind of puts in a word. There's While there may not be formal poaching amongst the big agencies on a lot of different players, there still obviously is on a lot of players anyway. There's a lot of sort of putting out feelers and chasing down a lead. And like idea. And the, the other thing is, I guess it's important to point out, is the only time the agent gets paid is when the player gets a bonus out of you know, July 2 or the draft, and then when they get to arbitration. So... 
if, for instance, a guy is with a small agency, gets a big bonus, say, you know, 800K, wasn't a big name, now he's in the minors, and you want to go steal him so you have him going forward, you may not get a dollar out of that kid for six years, even if he becomes the guy you think he's going to become, and you're spending a couple thousand dollars a year just going to see him and sort of, what they say, servicing, uh, you know, keeping him as a client. And so, like, you're basically in 20 grand hoping that this guy will return something, and so you can see why, you know, some either big or small agencies would look at that equation and be like, if a guy's in rookie ball and just got his bonus, it doesn't make sense for me to go get him. I'll wait till he's in double A, which is what the big agencies can do, uh, hoping that he'll still be sort of on the market at that point. Whereas the smaller ones, you'll see a lot of smaller agencies go to the GCL and the complex leagues and you'll try to get kids and often give them payouts of, you know, 10 grand. But one of the big things that happens there is players do not have to declare who their agent is until they're on a 40 man roster. So there are examples of especially Latin players that are in a new country and aren't having a lot of spending money if they didn't get a big bonus, taking money from three or four agents, never having to formally say who their agent is, and the other agents don't know that these other ones exist. And then when they get to double A, all of a sudden they sign up with Boris, and you know these these four small agencies that are all out ten grand, they just line the pockets of this kid that was probably going to get rich anyway, although nobody knew if it was going to happen or not, and they get nothing for it, and now they're you know four years into a relationship with this kid, and they get not even a sniff of money, which isn't going to come for even another three years after he gets on the forty man anyway. Yeah. So if you yeah, if you think July two is a dirty business and there's some unfair rules and stuff, there's similar stuff in the agent game. And I I actually was talking this I was at the high school tournaments uh this past week and there's obviously a lot of agents sort of uh circling around these players and in some cases making sure other agents aren't circling around their players. Uh and I was talking to a guy that's sort of just starting out and I said, Yeah, one of my got one of the guys I work for with the team became an agent and he said, yeah, it's not exactly what I thought it would be. I knew it would be sort of salesmanship and things like that. I didn't realize there was so much babysitting involved. And ba- babysitting I'll- meaning? So he represented some Latin players mm-hmm. and some of them that have already gotten extensions and are like real big leaguers that have you know returned you know and done what they were supposed to do and everyone's all happy. But, you know, you go get a guy, say an A-ball right after he blows up, and he is going to go to like the Sally League out of spring training in Florida – and this agent lives in Florida, you've got to drive him to his affiliate in like the Carolinas or wherever it was, set him up with an apartment, set him up with a checking account, show him where he goes to get food. Like he's in a foreign country, he doesn't speak the language. Yeah, and he's a tiny and person. It, I mean, he's not physically tiny, but he he's just a young person. Yeah, and then hang around for another week because if someone's going to come steal him, they're going to try to swoop in the first week and, you know, see him, talk to the player development people for that team, talk to the scouts that are there, go talk to the player, that kind of thing. And so he's like, end of spring training the days between spring training and the minor league season, the first week of the minor league season, I'm there watching this guy. And for all I know, the day I leave, you know, some other agency's going to swoop in and try to steal him. And if they give him 25 grand, I don't know, he might switch. Like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And, and so at some point, it's just about a numbers game. If you get 10 guys like that, two of them are probably going to leave you. Maybe you end up stealing a few. It's just, you're trying. And then, you know, one of them ends up going to the big leagues and making 10 million a year. You hope that's the one you get to keep. And then once you get a guy in the big leagues for 10 million, you then go to the upper echelon within the agency. You now deal with mostly, you know, major league players in general, if you get a couple of those guys, all of a sudden you're getting, you know, what they call mailbox money. You're getting you're getting a check every month for, you know, whatever based off of what he got. And that's why I said one of those three coveted jobs in baseball is agent with multiple ten million dollar a year plus players in the big leagues. And and now when you say I think you said something like four to five percent, is that like the total value of the contract roughly? Yeah, it's for yeah. I think I think it can go as low as three, and I think some places will charge six. But yeah, I think it's typically four or five percent of you know the bonus or the guaranteed money in a big league deal or whatever. But if it's the major league minimum, those zero to three years, you don't get anything. But once you get above the minimum, you get a cut of whatever it is above the minimum. 
Oh, so so they subtract out the minimum, which of course, if you're making, if it's ten million dollars, that's you know, that's yeah, it's negligible money. Right. Yeah. 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 Huh. Well, that's interesting. Now you said uh, there were. Uh, there are agents uh, even sort of, I don't know, if swarming, but lurking uh, around the, these high school tourneys. You were just at a high school tourney. Uh, in Atlanta, yeah. In Atlanta, right? It, well, so, I, when we talked yesterday, you were on your way out to see some guys. Yeah, and today was the finals where I think there were only three games, so I didn't go today. Okay. Well, By so the way, what, as, we, as we were speaking, my vine of a uh, of the walk-off, it got 100 retweets. So oh, that's <laughs> good thing I was there, right? Yeah, got those sweet RTs. Feels good. I, I mean, I couldn't be happier for you, Kylie. So one one fifty eight. It's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. This is it. Your your mom's gonna be so proud of you. It's true. I should text her some of this stuff. What? Uh, so first of all, tell us. The, the, one of the most recent times we spoke, you were at a perfect game showcase in Fort Myers, Florida, I believe, which I, I sort of I think represents the beginning of the high school scouting season because it, it doesn't take place that long after the draft. Correct. I think it's. I think I said it's typically a couple days after it'll get started. They'll do the junior national, which is 2017 players uh, who are, I guess, just finishing their sophomore years and going into their junior years. And then after that, they have the national, which is the one. The junior national, there's some scouts and mostly college recruiters. And then at the national, which would be players for the draft 12 months from then, uh, so it'd be the 2016 class. That happens right after it, and it's twice as long. And there's hundreds and hundreds of scouts and still some college recruiters, obviously. Uh, and, yeah, lots of attention. And the ver- various prospect people from the Internet, I'd say probably half of them were there and just in general. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good crowd. And it's 300-something players. And, you know, I have some familiarity with maybe 50 of them. Mm-hmm. And then of those other 250, maybe 150, 200 of them aren't really guys I need to worry about. Maybe just guys that will be college guys or junior college guys. But then there's another 50 you kind of see for the first time. And you're like, oh, that's a dude. i got to go track that guy down later. And once again, if I haven't asked you, how is it that the rosters, first for that perfect game showcase and then the one uh, that you just saw, how is it that the rosters are decided for those sorts of things? So for the showcases, it's based on, well, that one's an invitational one. So it's supposed to be like the top 300 players. Obviously, it's impossible to get everyone to show up and also have an accurate list that early in the process. But when you talk to college recruiters and travel teams and stuff, you can get a pretty good idea. And it'll also be skewed, since it's in Florida, it'll be skewed a little more to east of the Mississippi players. There's a handful of California guys that won't go, but there's obviously plenty of California guys there. Uh, so, yeah, it's just based on you get an invite, and then you either say yes or no, and then you pay the fee, which is you get a bunch of free gear and these uh, guys throwing 90 and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of scouts and recruiters see you. So that one would seem to be worth the money, although a lot of people complain that the showcases in general are ripoff. If there is one that is worth it, it is that one. And so if you get invited to it, then they just sort of – somewhat randomly put you on a team based on what days you can be there and roughly regionally where, you know, what kind of state you're from basically. But there's obviously a bunch of sort of random ones in there. And then the pitchers basically come in, pitch two innings and go home. And so they're more based on what days they can get there and stuff like that. Right, right, right. And, and, then, the, and then what? And then what? And then, what? then the thing I'm at, the thing I'm at now, which is uh, just a travel team tournament. Uh, so it's, it's always challenging on the first day of these things because there were hundreds of teams. I think probably 200 teams. And so they have right now... 200 teams? It might be 300. I don't know. It was a lot of teams. Uh, and so they have uh, a, a facility called Lake Point up uh, in the north, northern, northern suburbs of Atlanta that has eight fields that with artificial turf and all that sort of thing where it's easy to turn them over after each game that they just built. Perfect game. This is their tournament. Uh, and they're expanding. I think it's supposed to have 16 and a stadium. So it's eventually going to be the same size as Jupiter, which is 
think, yeah, I think it's four full, what they call clovers of four fields and then a stadium. So eventually all these different events are going to be played at this facility in Atlanta. For the time being, it's just eight fields. And so what they do is those eight fields are basically going nonstop for like three weeks straight because they'll have an 18U tournament, which is, uh, you know, the guys that were just seniors in high school and some of different ages. And then the one I went to was the 17U, which is the 2016 draft. And today the 17U ends and the 16U starts, which is the 2017 players and younger. Uh, and so those fields are going around the clock for like three weeks for these tournaments. And then they have a bunch of area high schools and like facilities and things that'll do basically in the middle of the day when there's more than eight games going. And so how do you know, other ones. so how do you know which field, uh, you ought well, to that's, be? Well, that's the challenge I was referring to. So there are, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 travel teams that are like name brand teams that are always good. So like this year for what they, they call this like Marietta or East Cobb. That's kind of like the generic term for it. Like the one, the one that's, there's the thing in Jupiter, uh, in October, uh, is called Jupiter and it's almost exactly the same thing. It's mostly the same teams. It's a tournament. It's travel teams. It's sort of all the same stuff. They just have one in July around July 4th and one in October, uh, around, uh, I guess, I don't know, whenever the October break. I don't know when that is. Uh, and so the thing is there's those eight or 10 teams that are always good and always have players. And, you know, some random years, there's, uh, there's like three teams in Florida that are like the powerhouses in Florida. There's two, like two teams in Georgia that are powerhouses there. There's like two or three SoCal teams and like two or three Texas teams. And of that group of like 10 to 15 teams, if you had to make a list of any given tournament who are the, like the most talented teams as far as pro potential, like the top 10 is going to probably be eight out of the 10 will be from that group of teams. So you can always just be like, oh, Evo Shield Canes, they're like from sort of like the mid-Atlantic area, but they're so good they'll grab random players from like Washington or California or Texas where like maybe their travel team didn't come to this one or they feel like it'd be better for them to be on a team that's more scouted. And so some of these like really good teams for certain tournaments, like in Jupiter particularly, one of the Florida teams will bring in like six players from nowhere near Florida to play for their team, and so they're like a super team basically. So you go watch those teams. Those are easy ones because you know they're just going to have basically high-level D1 guys slash pro guys at every spot in the lineup and pitchers almost. But then what you have to do is go through almost all of those other rosters (laughs) and look for names you recognize. And so, like, if an area scout is at this sort of event, uh, you you know, say you're covering the Carolinas – there's probably two or three teams from that area that are always good, and so you're always going to watch their games. And then there's going to be like 15 to 20 other teams that have players from that area, and so you'll go watch a game or you know ask somebody that saw a game, and you get an idea. Do they have guys they need to see? In general, you're going to see them at least once and just see, is this team awful? Is this just you know just a bunch of kids that are trying to find a game to play? And then on the Perfect Game website, they have all of the rosters, and so you can see like if there's a roster with no college commitments on it, it's almost always terrible. But if they have like two or three, it might be kind of decent. And then like Evo Shield, every single guy in the roster was committed to a D1 college. <laughs> so it's like, all right, they're probably pretty good. Right. And, and then and you know, also on the Perfect Game website, you can look up a particular kid and it'll tell you what team he's on. So if you just have like a hit list of 50 guys in your area, you can obviously look them all up individually and figure it out. But the the moral of the story is when there's say 200 teams at this tournament, 150 of them you basically don't want to watch at any level. You have no interest in them. And then there's 10 you want to see every game. And then there's like another 40 where they might have a player or two or a pitcher or two. And they'll usually give you a heads up about who the probable pitchers are. And so you can kind of, you know, set things up. Whereas at Jupiter, everyone's all in the same place. You can walk from one field to another. For Marietta slash East Cobb, they might be 45 minutes away at some random high school in another suburb, which makes it a little trickier. So that's why I went yesterday to the playoffs when everybody's all in the same place and it's just the best teams. Now you said, you've said, uh, before that, 
uh, one thing that happens is or is that not even even scouts, maybe even area scouts, are not uh, they're not always necessarily familiar until this time of year. Maybe it starts at that that uh, showcase, the Perfect Game Showcase in Fort Myers, uh, and and continues through this point. They tend not to be f- familiar before that, though, with the draft eligible high schoolers until uh, until the um, the draft. You know, in this case, the 2015 draft uh, just ended. They might know them um, if they played on the same team with with a kid who was a draft prospect. But uh, but frequently they're relying on this the you know the rosters that uh, colleges have put together um, or the, the players who are the colleges are recruiting uh, as a sort of um, uh, as a sort of sign of which players they ought to be tracking. Yeah, they're always going to know a handful of guys from their area just because you'll you know, like I said know know them from playing on a big time team or a big time travel team. Like a lot of these teams I'm watching for the 17U tournament. It's mostly 2016 guys, but some of these really top teams will have a really top 2017 guy on their roster, and you're obviously going to know that guy pretty far in advance, but that's that's just a handful of guys per area. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you'll know you'll run into some guys. You'll hear about some guys. I know a lot of area guys all hear, oh, there's, a 20, there's like a sophomore in college at a small school, or there's a 2017 that is on one of these travel teams. I heard about them, and the area I'll be like, yeah, I heard about him too. I talked to such and such area scout that ran into him and said he was good. Because the the some of the bigger like uh, mid summer showcases are East Coast Pro, which is all the states east of the Mississippi, uh, and then area codes, which is actually all the states, but it's you know it's in California, so it's sort of California heavy. They will have tryouts for those showcases around well actually they've had basically all of them by now. So they were in like the last month. So like as you're discovering all these players at these first couple events of the summer, you're having to decide who's going to go to the events late in the summer when you've kind of discovered everybody. So you may know a handful of guys in your area, maybe know half the names but not know the other half, you know, on draft day and then within 3 weeks pretty much all the area guys need to know at least all the names or if you haven't seen them know this is a guy I need to look up, you know, if he's at a certain event or whatever. So pick them up pretty quickly because there's a lot of incentives to Especially among the scouts, there's like a certain level of pride that like East Coast Pro, if there is a good player on the East Coast, he will be at that event. He may not go to other stuff. He might not be a showcase guy, might not be a tournament or travel team guy, but we'll get him to go there if anybody knows about him at that point. Uh, and then area codes is the same way. If you, so in area codes, it used to just be the different area codes of like California and the West, and they've eventually expanded to where they have a Northeast and Southeast team. There's a team that's just SoCal, a NorCal team, and there's eight teams sort of by region. The funny thing is, like, the Southeast team will have, like, you know, three or four of the elite guys from, you know, the 20 elite guys from the Southeast, and then just sort of random assortment of other guys. Because Erica is, is, like, one of the later events. It doesn't have a ton of prestige in, like, the Southeast. Whereas the California teams, the NorCal and SoCal teams, always have, like, 45 players on them. Because, like, high school kids in California dream of getting to be on an area code roster. And, like, all the scouts in California don't want to, like, leave a kid out. Because that's, like, the thing you want to be to. And it's, like invitation-based, and also uh, some of these All-American games will happen or will have the kids come in for practices in the middle of area codes. And so, like, the later games, a lot of the good players are gone, and so you can bring in a bunch of, you know, just sort of good college guys to play because it's, like, an honor. Uh, and so there's a lot of sort of politics like that. And also, like, if there's ever, like, a, guy, a kid that's decent, maybe even D1 good, that's, like, the son of a high-level scout or scouting director, he gets invited to every single event. And so every year there's a handful of guys that are, you know, that are there and maybe wouldn't be there on merit alone. They'd be kind of in the mix, but they wouldn't make it. And you see the last name and you're like, uh, that's where that guy's from. That's got to be his son. And then you find out, yeah, it's his son. Huh. 
That's a, that's a lot. That's a that's a lot going on. And so I feel like this is a really boring topic. No, but. no, but I I am enjoying it. And, and so he, tell me about just the logistics. You mentioned that the player representatives are walking around these sorts of things. They're not allowed to have direct contact with the players, though, isn't that right? Uh, oh, so something just happened on my phone. This uh, this bed flip is getting sent around. Cornelius Randolph just faved and retweeted it for oh, front pick of the Phillies. That's pretty big news, that's right? That's Great, this is big. <laughs> Sorry, I, um, I'm glad I'm glad you're updating it and demand another update in about ten minutes, Kylie. Yeah, we're over 200 RTs now, so mm, I mean, this is yeah. pretty big. That's pretty big. Oh man, I am I am everything I hate. Um, so the the finally agents, it took you. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you had that epiphany while we were. I've been at Fangraphs for about ten months now, and I've now become everything I hate. Yeah. Okay. All right. So there are player representatives walking around. There are player. Yeah. So you, agents and players and writers and parents and scouts and everybody, when they are talking to the media and their official whatever, they cannot say agent. I mean, they can say whatever they want. They should not say agent because then that sets off alarms to the NCAA that. There has been, you know, improper conduct with this player. He's lost his amateurism and all that other garbage the NCAA does. So it's always referred to as advisor in any official, like, broadcasted capacity from any of the parties involved in this process. However, <laughs> when it is not official, they're just called agents because they all represent a bunch of professional players and they are agents. But for some reason, when they're referred to, especially when you're referring to a specific agent and a specific player, you always say advisor because you don't want to sell the kid out. But since I'm speaking about it in general terms, I say agent. Um, so they are, I guess, technically not allowed to ne- – the thing they're not allowed to do is negotiate on behalf of the player. Like they can't talk to the team, which, of course, you wouldn't be a very good advisor or agent if you didn't talk to the team. They all do. Uh, but it is presented in the media as that never happens because then that is basically rubbing you know, rubbing a cop's face and speeding past him kind of thing. Right. Um, Wait, what are you doing so- to a cop? You're touching his face? Like you're speeding, they're not gonna pull you over if you're going 80 and a 70. Right. But if you go past it with like your butt hanging out the window, they're gonna be like, well now I gotta pull you over. I didn't want to, but now I have to. Yeah. Which in the past, when players have lost their amateur eligibility in college, it's been when a media report or, or yeah, a media report said by any number of people involved in this process said agent or explained, I called the agent and he said so and so, and then we couldn't get a deal done. It was like, okay, you just admitted that you broke the rules. No, everyone knows you're breaking the rules, but you just admitted it. So now there's a smoking gun. So now we have to do something. No, we have to do something. Anyway, so the agents are obviously allowed to talk to the family, solicit the family, all the things you think they would have to do uh, at these showcases when they see them and identify them. They j- it just comes down to what happens like in the you know the three months before the draft when there's agenty things potentially happening. So like I talked to a couple agent friends at the PG National, and I was like, this seems like a good event for you guys because the kids are they paid to go there to promote themselves. They don't care if they win the game. It's just about how hard did I throw? Did I hit well in the game? For a reason. It's not like they're being selfish. It's just the reason they're there. And then once the game is over, they turn around and walk out. And so, like, they're in they're in the then Fort Myers and the Red Sox uh, spring training stadium. So it's like a big building. You can easily go talk to someone and not be obvious to the entire stadium who's talking to who and all that. And everyone just walks out the same entrance. You know, every single person going in at the stadium, you know, agents and players and parents and scouts and writers and all that. And so, and they're also wearing a jersey with their name and number on the back. So they're super easy to find. And if you see a kid with two grown people, they are his parents or are acting as his parents that week. And so if you're an agent, you're like, all right, 16 on green, that's my guy. And then you see him walking out after his game's over and his parents are just standing there and they're like in the mindset of, you know, being open to that. Whereas other events like say area codes, uh, you take BP once. 
there isn't like a showcase portion like where you do like a show infield or run the 60 or anything like that. And there are games, you're in a uniform, you're trying to win at least more than these showcases. And your like whole team leaves at once. Your parents aren't necessarily standing right there because you kind of maybe traveled with the team. And then kids get in the bus and go back, you know, to the hotel or whatever. Like it's a little tougher to get face to face time with the kids. Whereas these tournaments where the kid has a game at, you know, eight in the morning and then another one at four o'clock and he just hangs around the complex all day and is wearing a jersey with his number and name on it. And the parents are there. Like it's, and it's like travel team coaches there. Like everything is there. It's super easy to do that. Right, so typically it seems like for the agents, They'll, you know, they'll know about the kid probably as a 2017, maybe know the name, know the guys in their general area that they cover, go talk to them at PG National or right before or right after. And then sort of by the end of the summer, they're like looking to, you know, lock a kid up or like have a commitment or whatever. And some of the really top players, they'll be done as juniors. But I mean, there's like research being done and like agents telling me, hey, I'm going to go look at this kid. What do you know about him? When they're like college freshmen, two years from being eligible, high school sophomores, two years from being eligible. But often the decision isn't made until, you know, 12 to 18 months early at the most. What, uh, now you mentioned with regard to the scouts when they're, when they're at these sort of things that there's sort of a, there is an element of pride to being able to, um, com, you know, construct a list of all of the, the draft eligible guys or like, um, not just draft eligible, but, uh, appealing draft eligible players. Is that, are they trying to put that together? Are they already putting together a, a prep list for their area or are they putting that list together so that they know which players to check out when the baseball season begins like in the next February or March? Yes. They, <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> right. So is it, is, are they looking to, are they, are they looking to have any sort of do they have to submit any sort of documents before that before the you know next spring's baseball season begins? Are they are they talking to their their uh you know cross checkers and scouting directors about kids or are they waiting for that next season to begin? No. So uh typically by the end of the summer teams have figured out the guys that they quote like. Mm-hmm. So like uh let's say of the all right, so before the last year's draft, or you know, last month's draft, when yeah. there were, say, the, the ten team-slash-player combinations you heard most often, like, you know, Daz Cameron with the Astros or, uh, you know, any other n- number of names like that that you heard tied to a team, like Tyler J with the Rockies, uh, I probably knew half of those by the end of the summer. Or the, the t- all ten of those teams knew that they liked those guys by the end of the summer, and then maybe on half of them I get some sort of indication, or I know that they're one of the teams most interested in. Like, there's some sort of indication that kind of filters down to me. Obviously, you know, ten months in advance of the draft, that's kind of useless, but you kind of file it away for later that, oh, yeah, I talked to so-and-so, you know, cross-checker with so-and-so team, and he mentioned when I showed him a list of my 10 favorite guys of that event that I kind of wrote up on my notebook when things were getting slow, he told me to move so-and-so up, and he's one of the top decision makers for them. Eight months later, oh, yeah, they're being tied to him. He's going to go in that range. That makes sense. All right, they've been on him for a while. That makes sense. So, And there have been guys like Desmond Lindsay with the Mets where he was very good the entire summer. If you were paying attention, you could have seen him the summer before, after his sophomore going into his junior year. And then during the spring, he played like 10 games total. Uh, it might have been less than that because of hamstring injury. And they took him in the second round. Now, if you told me at the end of last summer he was going to go in the second round, I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. That would be where I expect him to go. Uh, or, you know, second or third or sandwich, you know, somewhere in that general area. And then he didn't play this spring. And so I just put him in like the late third round because I'm like, ah, 
you know, unless you really bear down on him and saw enough last summer, you didn't really see him this spring. You don't know exactly how healthy he is. Had some hamstring stuff. He's not like a super athletic up the middle guy. He's more of a corner guy. I figure I'll go in the third. And they took him in the second, and I was like, oh, they probably just really liked him over the summer. And there were a couple of guys like that where they basically drafted over what they did on the summer and sort of disregarded or, you know, it turns out they didn't really need the spring to tell them what to do. And so a lot of times, like I said, if the area guys maybe know half of the names and know half, you know, maybe a quarter of the players in their area on draft day, uh, you know, of the year before, and then they'll know basically all the names in the next month, their job for those, like those summer months is obviously to go to the showcases and see the players and, you know, take the video and all that kind of thing. But the cross checker, scouting director, VP, all those guys are seeing the players and evaluating them too. Their job is to, meet the family, maybe coach them on a scout team, uh, do the in-home visits, get an idea of what the makeup is like. There's already two or three guys in this year's class that are like top three-round talents that I already know are terrible makeup guys. And actually one of them I knew about over a year ago because he was one of those guys that's very easy to find on the showcase circuit, and there was already rumblings at that point when he was like a sophomore, like this guy's a problem. Uh, and it, So you find that stuff out, you start zeroing in, maybe you find a guy with great makeup that you think is a top couple round guy, and then when you go to area codes in August and all your scouts are there, he performs really well, and you're like, all right, we're going to decide this is a guy that we're on, let's move him up the board. And a lot of organizations now in like the maybe November, December, January area where there's no games really being played will actually do a formal exercise of making a board and doing a mock draft and doing the whole thing just to get a better idea of where the strengths of the draft are, where certain guys are going to fall. Is this guy, what are the chances he's in play? You know, if we pick at 19 for our first pick, this guy probably goes in the top five, but he doesn't hit it all this spring. He has a chance he could get down there. So let's make sure early on we go in and see him and get a better idea if we need to see him late in the spring. So there's a lot of a lot of strategy that by the by the time you see reports like say March 1st about where the draft class is relative to where it was last summer teams have already made a lot of decisions and some guys are basically out of the mix for teams at that point already where they're like he's going to go too high or too low or we don't like the makeup we don't like the signability or whatever it is we're going to you know shift off of him and another guy like that was Lance McCullers for a bunch of reasons I won't get into not makeup stuff but just sort of like price and performance and, and all head that kind not, of thing. it is head whack and it said whack. A bunch of teams told me after like March 15th, March 1st, we just didn't scout him anymore. And I, he was the guy that when I was working for ESPN that year, I went in and saw him like five times. He was also like 10 minutes from my house. But I went and saw him like five times and he was different and better. Like he made a different adjustment each time I saw him like every two or three weeks. And when I talked to some Astros guys, they were like, yeah, I, we don't know what teams were on him, but we knew he had a big pool. We knew he had a lot of talent. We knew people were scared off by the signability and scared off by some of the talent issues. But we were in there long enough to know that he was making improvements and he was a guy we liked. And, you know, basically stayed on them. But if you're a team maybe picks 15 and 60 and you don't have a big pool, that's not really a guy for you. And so you're going to, once you start seeing some stuff you don't like, you're going to shift your attention elsewhere. Yeah, well, uh, McCullers over 10 starts now has been worth, uh, you know, depending on how you measure it, somewhere between one and a half to two wins. Yeah, and one of the things he did super, actually it's in the video on the Fangraphs YouTube page because I've seen him so many times. I put, I think, little parts of each of those times in his video. So there's like, I think, part parts of six starts in his senior spring, you can see the delivery changing. And then in the state title game, uh, he was facing, I think it was American Heritage or like a, a bunch of like pro-level guys on the team. He just started throwing a changeup. He hadn't really been throwing all spring, and it was good. And I, was, I remember, I think in the report I wrote for ESPN, it was like, he didn't really throw a changeup. He didn't really have great command. Now the command's passable. He's making improvements. He just randomly started in the changeup that's like above average at times. 
And then he kind of put it away lower in the minors because he was focusing on, you know, the command and consistency of the fastball and curveball. And I talked to scouts. Chris Mitchell was asking me, hey, have you heard anything? I'm writing something up on McCullers. Have you heard anything on him? And I tracked down a few scouts, and they were like, yeah, he just started throwing a changeup this year, and it's, like, mostly below average to average, and his flashes plus out of nowhere. Like, I, if he can do that consistently, he's, like, untouchable now because the command's, like, you know, passable. It's, like, fringy. And the stuff is so power, first time to the league, people aren't going to be, you know, sort of ready for it. And if you can mix in a third pitch... And that's the same thing happened with Jose Fernandez. I saw him in a ball and he had his delivery was cutting himself so much, cutting himself off so much he couldn't throw a change up and just like, couldn't even throw it in the zone, couldn't get any action on it. And then by that time next year, he had fixed that part of his delivery and he was throwing a plus change up. And it was just some, some guys have the ability to make a slight adjustment and do that. And, you know, some guys don't have the ability to make adjustments or maybe their delivery just isn't one, you know, there isn't the ability in there. But some guys, if you can make an adjustment and that sort of latent ability is in there, you can make a huge jump. And some of the, some of these like great early 20s pitchers, they just happen to be that kind of guy that just happened to find that adjustment. Yeah. The, um, you mentioned, um, a long time, a player that you had scouted for some time, uh, with whom you certainly were familiar, Lance McCullers. Uh, another player who, um, who also matches that description and in fact is a friend of the pod, uh, Tuki Toussaint. He, uh, FOP. Yeah, friend of the pod. He, uh, or the program. Friend of the program. He, he, uh, I saw reports, uh, this week, and I think you might have confirmed them even, that he was, uh, he's throwing quite hard, uh, for, what, for low A Rome? Does that sound right? Yep, I'll probably see him in about a week. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, it was weird that people kind of gravitated to that Dave Stewart quote that he doesn't throw 96 when, I saw him hit 96 when he was, I believe, 14 years old. <laughs> right, right. And had a plus curveball when he was 14 years old. And he hit 96 almost every single outing I've ever seen him. I think everyone. And every report I had was, you know, uh, late after he signed, early this spring, spring training. At all these points, he was basically the same guy. And then his first start with the Braves, people knew to pay attention to this. And were like, yeah, he hit 96 his first couple starts with the Braves, too. Like, I don't know why he felt compelled to try to drive down this guy's value that he just traded when everyone knows he's wrong. But he yeah. did. And he literally Dave Stewart and, gonna Dave Stewart. And he said aloud, uh Dave Stewart said aloud, uh we we didn't really shop him. Um which seems to be a mistake. But um I it's you know This could be a much longer uh segment in the program if you really want to zero in on, on the uh vagaries of how the Diamondbacks have been doing their jobs the last few years. Or the last few months. Informed by my wife that I should probably get going soon. However, I would like to ask you one thing. Uh it's getting uh, who were you informed by? My wife, the, the thing I would like to say is this. Fist pumping right now. Uh, is, um, uh, we've reached the sort of season when one begins to see a number of mid, uh, mid, sort of time in, in the year, one begins to see a number of mid-season top prospect lists, uh, for, you know, for, pro, for minor leaguers. And I'm curious as to what Fangraphs readers can expect, if anything, from you in that regard. Don't expect anything from me. Okay. I will just let you down. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. No, I've, I've mentioned in the chat, uh, I have, uh, so the two things I said, one, I've got something, uh, something big in the works. Oh, big in the works. And wow. it big in the works. And two, uh, I think from, if you've been paying even, you know, not very much, but a little attention to yeah. what I've done the last 10 months or so that I've been here, I don't pay super close attention to the, 
uh, conventions of what the other prospect sites do or sure. the formats of their lists. <laughs> so sure. to, I remember somebody asked me in the chat, it was like, hey, uh, two other outlets put out mid-season lists that I think were the exact same length and like the same amount of comments and everything, the same thing they do every year, like within days of each other. When's yours coming out? I was like, yeah, you can sh- probably guess from my history I wasn't going to do something exactly the way they did it, exactly when they did it. Right. So yeah, I've got a... I got another thing coming. I, I think you guys will appreciate the weight. I know Carson knows what I'm talking about, but barely. Yeah, I don't really remember talking to you yesterday. I don't even know who you are, actually. Oh, another update on the tw- on the uh, the vine. Oh, thank God. So uh, someone retweeted it, and it turns out that someone was followed by Tyler Stevenson, the Reds' first round pick, who uh, I'd have a vine of that I think has three million uh, whatever's yes. already. Yeah, and he and <laughs> and he said, "Watch and learn to that guy," and and, and embedded my vine from earlier. <laughs> <laughs> my God! So why wow, really... that ain't nothing? Check out my vine. <laughs> and uh, do you think that this newest, uh, this newest bat flip rivals Stevenson's? Uh, how do you feel about it? The bat flip itself is not, but it is a walk off home run in a scoreless playoff game. Okay. So the, the and it's also yeah, it happens to also be that his entire dugout is in the background, so you can see the whole reaction. Uh, and then like the you know little jumping circle they make around the plate, so it's like there's a little more emotion involved, I would say. But I'd say the fl- the bat flip itself it doesn't hold a candle to Stevens. Okay, well that's great. You've got all the updates on all the things you don't care about. Okay, all right. Well then I'm going to uh, shower my body for a wedding. You're allowed to do whatever you want. Yeah, I think I'm just gonna keep doing nothing today. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kylie McDaniel. Uh, yeah, social media monster Kylie McDaniel and also lead prospect analyst of fangraphs.com. That has been lead prospect analyst of fangraphs.com. Kylie McDaniel, I'm Carson Sestuli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs> Embarrassing.